Will you turn with me tonight to Exodus chapter 25? Exodus chapter 25. One way of thinking about the structure of Exodus is thinking about Mount Sinai as the center of the whole structure of the book. The first half of the book is really about God using Moses to get his people from Egypt to Sinai. That's what he's doing. He's called Moses to lead them, to to lead them out of Egypt. God showed his mighty power in delivering them from Egypt. But the point of all of that was to get them to Sinai where he could enter into covenant with them, where he could give them his law, where he could give them instructions on how to worship him. And so coming to Mount Sinai is really the center of the book. Tonight we come to really kind of a turning point and this begins really the last major section of the book of Exodus because beginning in chapter 25 verse 1 all the way through the end of the book mostly is focused on the worship of God and the worship of God specifically through the tabernacle and the priesthood that will minister in that tabernacle. And so that is really what takes up most of the the last of these 16 chapters of Exodus. 13 of those 16 chapters are about the tabernacle or about the priestly garments or the service that will take place in that tabernacle. Sandwiched in the middle of those 16 chapters are three chapters that deal with some events that took place in, is in the, among the Israelites and then between God and Moses. And what's interesting is that in the middle of all of these chapters that describe the true worship of God, right in the middle you have the climactic event of Israel engaging in false worship before God. And I think that structure is intentional. Because what's interesting is that as you read chapter 25 through chapter 31, you have Moses on Mount Sinai and God telling him how to build the tabernacle. And then in chapter 35 through the end of the book, it is almost verbatim of chapter 25 to 31, except with Israel carrying out those instructions of building the tabernacle to the same with the same words and same details as are given in chapter 25 through 31. So one is God giving the instructions, and then at the end they're putting that into practice and building the tabernacle. And all of that has to do with the proper worship of God. And in the middle is Israel not worshiping God the way that they were supposed to. And I think that structure is intentional to highlight just how important it is to worship God rightly, to worship Him in the way that He instructs His people to worship Him. In the passage that we come to tonight in Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9, it is uh, a, a call from God through Moses to the people for the people to give willingly to the Lord for the construction of this tabernacle. And the reason why this tabernacle is so important is because this tabernacle will house God's presence. 
this tabernacle is about God coming to be among his people in a special way that he had not been before. And really fulfills the purpose of God calling his people out of Egypt and entering into a covenant with them so that he would be their God and they would be his people. And so that God would dwell in the midst of them. And we can see the centrality of that later on in the story when we see the camp of Israel surrounding this tabernacle. And so God in his presence in this sanctuary, this holy place, becomes the centerpiece of all Israelite worship and life and community. And so God is very intentional about the way that he is instructing Moses in the way to build this, because this is to be a holy place. And it's going to be made holy because God is going to come and dwell there. And so that's why there's so much emphasis on this last part of, uh, of in Exodus on the building of the tabernacle. And I was reading one of the commentaries, and I thought he made a, a very excellent point. He said, from our modern perspective, reading about gold and linen and various materials and various measurements and dimensions of the tabernacle and how it was to be constructed, for, for us, reading it from a modern perspective, it can seem tedious, repetitive. But he made the point that from an ancient mind, this, this great expanse of detail on the tabernacle and even the repetition uh, that we see in chapter 35 and, and 240, repeating what we see in 25 to 31, he says the whole point of that is to show how important this was. So the reason it, ha- it covers you know, almost half the book of Exodus, if you think about it, is about the tabernacle and worshiping God as God comes to dwell in that tabernacle. And just the emphasis of how much material and how much detail it goes into in the making of that tabernacle shows us the heart of the matter. Shows us that really worship of God is the ultimate reality, isn't it? That's the ultimate focus of God's people, to worship him and to worship him as the glorious God that he is. But what I want us to see tonight in this passage is the willingness of God's people to give. The people give freely. And so in verse 1, in the first part of verse 2, we see that the Lord is worthy of our gifts. The Lord is worthy of our gifts. Verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. And now, this is the words that are used convey a free will donation. So in other words, ask, call on the Israelites to give and to give to the Lord, to bring me, the Lord, an offering. And why should they do this? Because the Lord is worthy. He's worthy. And, and all of that, that comes not just from verses 1 and 2, but it comes from the, everything leading up from Exodus 1-1 all the way to this point, doesn't it? Everything that he has done for them. He had not forgotten about them when they were in slavery in Egypt. He raised up a deliverer for them. He sent that deliverer to them. By his mighty power, he rescued them and brought them out. When they thought they were at their last end and the Egyptian army was coming down upon them, God opened up a path for them through the Red Sea and they went across on dry ground. 
when they came across the Amalekites and other enemies who tried to, to oppose them, God was with them. And he defeated their enemies and he cleared the path for them all the way to Mount Sinai where they could come and be with God at his presence as he came to rest on the mountain. And then he gave them his laws, his covenants, his commands. And the people said, we will follow the Lord. And they entered into covenant together. And we saw the ratification of that covenant in chapter 24 where the people formally entered into this relationship with God. God as their ruler, their king, and they as his people. He is worthy. He is their redeemer, right? He is their redeemer. He is their Lord. He is their king. He is the one who set them free from bondage. He's worthy of their gifts. He's worthy of their gifts. Well, the interesting thing about verse number one, where it says, the Lord said to Moses, some commentators have, have pointed this out. I would have never noticed this detail. But that phrase, the Lord said to Moses, and then God giving specific instructions about the tabernacle, that phrase occurs seven times in chapter 25 through the end of the book, implying a very clear pattern of six plus one, as we've seen in other places in Scripture. And they pointed out that probably intentionally this is to show that the creation of the tabernacle is like a repeat, if you will, of the creation week in which God is making something new. Now his people are making something, building, creating after the image of their creator as he gives them the pattern for that. And so they are to now give, they're to bring an offering for the building of this temple. In the second part of verse number two, secondly, we see that the Lord is worthy not only of our gifts, but worthy of gifts that are freely and cheerfully given. The Lord is worthy of gifts that are freely and cheerfully given. Verse number two says, you are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. In other words, this was an offering that was to arise out of their hearts out of a desire to love God and to worship him and to give to him freely of all that they had blessed them with. As we read in first Chronicles 29, David recognized this truth that everything that we have comes from God. David said in first Chronicles 29, all these gifts, all this gold, all this silver that the people have contributed, Lord, none of this would be possible except for the fact that you blessed us with it in the first place. The people of Israel, think about where they've come from. Think about where they were and think about where they are now. They were in bondage, right? They were in slavery. They were under cruel tyranny. They had nothing. And now God has set them free and he's brought them out and he is blessing them. And as they left Egypt, they didn't go out empty handed, did they? They went out with the plunder of the Egyptians, of their gold and silver and fine garments. Where do you think all of this gold and all of this silver and all this linen come from that they are now free will giving to the Lord for the construction of the tabernacle? It came because of God's deliverance. It came because God blessed them with it. And they left Egypt with all of these goods from the Egyptians. And now they're giving back to God that which with he, he has blessed them with. 
And so they're giving freely. They're giving cheerfully. The parallel to this is in Exodus 35, verse 5, which is, this is the instruction, chapter 25. Chapter 35, we see the people actually carrying it out. And 35.5 says that everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering, and they begin to bring all of these things, exactly what chapter 25 had prescribed. And so this was to arise from their hearts, not as an external compulsion, but as an internal willingness, a desire to give. And by the way, this, this should mark all of us as God's people now, even in this age, shouldn't it? The Apostle Paul writes that God loves a cheerful giver. He says to the Corinthians, when you come together on the first day of the week, let everyone set aside and store that which with he is going to give and contribute to the Lord's work. And so this is a principle that abides in, under the new covenant is a free will, cheerful giving of offerings to the Lord. And so God is worthy of our gifts. He's worthy of our free will and cheerful gifts. Thirdly, the Lord is worthy of our most precious and valuable gifts. The Lord is worthy of our most precious and valuable gifts. Notice in verses 3 through 5. These are the offerings that you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood. So these are, these are expensive and valuable items. Now, I might take a little bit different approach with the teaching on the tabernacle than maybe you have heard at different times before. I, I do not follow the approach of interpretation with the tabernacle that every single item is, is to be seen symbolism in that for teaching us something about who Jesus is. I think some of those links are speculative. We don't have clear teaching on those links in Scripture, on some of those symbols. And so, for example, some people will say gold represents this, silver represents this, bronze represents this, the, the blue color represents this, the purple represents this. I'm not convinced that all of those links are solid. And so I'm not going to approach it that way. But does the tabernacle teach us about Christ and point to Christ in the New Testament? Absolutely. But I'm just not convinced that every single one of those details is meant to carry over into some kind of symbolism about, about Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to approach it that way. But I do think it is clear from these items that are listed here that these are very costly and precious items. Gold and silver and bronze. We, we recognize these, those even today as precious metals, right? Gold, silver, and bronze. What are, the, what are the three medals given out in the Olympics? Gold, silver, and bronze. And in that order, right? Gold for first place, silver for second place, bronze for third place. It's because of their worth. Those are valuable metals, but increasing value, Right? So silver is more valuable and precious than bronze. Silver is, or gold is more valuable and precious than silver. And what's interesting is as you see the construction of the tabernacle and the way that these materials are used, 
the closer that you get to the interior of the tabernacle and the closer you get to the Holy of Holies, the more precious the materials. And so bronze is used out here, then silver, then the most holy parts are used, use gold. Same thing with some of these other elements, such as the, the colors and the fine linens. The, the closer you get to the presence of God, the more precious and costly the items are. So I do think there's validity in seeing that progression. And so very costly, very precious gifts. And then it's listed different kinds of yarn and fine linen. It gives different colors, blue and purple and scarlet. Those are beautiful colors. And I, I don't know if those are necessarily intended to communicate any certain symbolism. Some people will point toward royalty or divinity. I, I'm not sure. But one thing I can tell you for sure is that these things in the ancient world were incredibly valuable. Incredibly costly. You know, for us, you know, to go down to a store, a Walmart, or even if we wanted to go to a nicer department store and buy some nicer material, we can go and we can buy nice material in any color that we want, and we think nothing of it, right? I mean, here's, here's some really nice quality material in this beautiful color, and we just go and we buy it. And a lot of it is made relatively simply nowadays through the technology that we have available to us. But think about in the ancient world. In the ancient world, some of these dyes that were used to make these different colored materials, like, for example, the blue and the purple, some of those blue and purple dyes that were used, they had to get those from marine life in the Mediterranean Sea. So sea mollusks, other small creatures in the Mediterranean Sea, they would get the, the, the dye from that. That's how they would make the dye. Uh, one commentator I read suggested that they would need hundreds, if not thousands, of these little marine life creatures to get enough dye to make one robe. The, the scarlet, that red color, comes from a worm or an insect. So all of this was, was painstakingly done to go and buy one of these scarlet or blue fine linen, finely woven linen garments, incredibly costly, incredibly expensive. But where do they get them from? They got them from the people in Egypt. In fact, this fine linen, Egypt was known for that kind of very fine linen. So they left Egypt, and they left Egypt wealthy. Where else would they get all of this material to be able to give gold and silver and fine linen? It's because God provided it for them when he delivered them out of Egypt. And possibly in addition to that, in addition to what they got from Egypt, maybe along the way, here, here they come across the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, now the Israelites had no ill will against the Amalekites. They just wanted to pass through freely. But the Amalekites said, no, we're not going to let you. And they attacked them. But the Israelites defeated them. And perhaps they plundered the Amalekites in their defeat and got some more valuables and materials from them. But these are very costly materials. Ram skins dyed red. Very painstaking process to do this kind of leather that was cured a proper way and dyed in this particular color. Durable leather, acacia wood. Acacia wood was known in the ancient world for being very strong. 
very strong, durable, hard wood. But here's the thing. The, the wood that it came from, they were small trees. So it was, very, it was a, a very hard process to get wood from the acacia trees because they were small trees. And you had to get a lot of them to get enough wood to be used for construction. So what's the point of this? God wants the best. He deserves the best, right? And he is worthy of the best gifts from his children, our most precious and valuable gifts, because what we're going to use this for is a place of worship for God, a place for God's presence to dwell. So the Lord is worthy of our most precious and valuable gifts. We also see in this passage that the Lord is worthy of useful and purposeful gifts so that he may be worshiped. Now, verses six and seven, I think these are also costly materials. Some of these perfumes and spices that are mentioned, they also are costly and valuable, but they also were intended to be used for very specific purposes in the worship of God. So we see, for example, in verse six, it says olive oil for the light to burn lamps for illumination in the tabernacle spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. So costly perfumes, myrrh, other kinds of uh, calamus, cinnamon, cassia, very special, expensive kinds of perfumes and ointments. And they're to be made for the fragrant incense. Why? So that the temple or the, so the tabernacle would not only look beautiful, but so that it would also smell beautifully. It would be a place proper for the Lord. And onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. The ephod and the breastpiece are priestly garments that we'll read about in a little bit in chapter 28. But these are stones and gems that are going to be used for the manufacture of those special garments. So costly gifts, but also gifts that are being going to be used for very special purposes for the worship of the Lord. We also see in fifthly in this passage that the Lord is worthy of a sanctified place for his presence among his people. The Lord is worthy of a sanctified place for his presence among his people. Verse eight, he says, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. This is what the heart of the matter is. Everything that we're going to read about, all the materials, all the instructions in putting this tabernacle together, this is the whole point. To make a holy place. That's what sanctuary means. A place that is holy, that is set apart, that is consecrated. And God is going to come and dwell with them. Sometimes this glory, this presence of God is is known as the Shekinah glory of God that comes to rest. There is a Greek term that is very closely related to that, that root word of Shekinah. And we see it come up in John 1 14, where it says that Jesus, the word became flesh and he dwelt among them. Literally he tabernacled among them. He came to take up residence among them. So if you want to link something to Jesus, link the presence, the glory presence of God in the tabernacle, that's Jesus. 
Because in the New Testament, it says this divine word, this eternal word came down and took on flesh, tented or tabernacled among us. Jesus, God's presence in human form among us. But here, this passage is focused on a place that is sanctified, that is set apart for God, and he is worthy of that. And it's, it's his desire to come and to dwell among his people. It is a holy place. And what makes it holy is God. God is holy. And when he comes to dwell in this place, he sanctifies it by his presence. He makes it holy. But he is worthy of this. And it is to become the heart, the dwelling place, the centerpiece of Israelite worship and life. Lastly, in verse 9, we see the Lord is worthy of being worshipped according to his instructions. The Lord is worthy of being worshipped according to his instructions. He says to Moses, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern that I will show you. Exactly like the pattern. In other, in other words, Moses, I don't want you freewheeling here. In the building and the construction of this tabernacle, this is to be done in a very precise way. And I will show you how I want it done. And what does that communicate? To me, I think it communicates the idea that when God is to be worshipped, he is to be worshipped in a holy way, in a way that God prescribes, in a way that God instructs and demands. One of the commentaries I read, I put it this way. And I liked how it was put. He says, we do not determine for ourselves how we want to come into the presence of a holy God. If we come into his presence at all, it will be on his terms and in accord with his desires and character. God determines how he is to be worshipped. And, and that's true not just for the Old Testament Israelites, but that's true today too as well, isn't it? That as New Testament believers, we are to worship God in accordance with his word. One last thing to think about in chapter 25, verse 9, is God says to Moses, I want you to make it after the pattern exactly how I will show you. Now, what's interesting is that as you read chapter 25 through 40 of Exodus, there are not enough details to be able to construct something with great precision. Now, it gives us a lot of information. It gives us details on exactly what kind of substances. And it says, you know, this is to be used for this. This is to be used for this. this is, these are the, the, the rough shape and dimensions. But down to details, it does not give us a lot of precise details. And what's interesting is... In chapter 25, verse 9, he says, Make this tabernacle exactly like the pattern that I will show you. The idea of a pattern is the idea of a, a mold or a picture. And really one way of understanding verse 9 is the tabernacle itself will be a copy of of the master, which is in heaven. 
One way of understanding verse 9 is that not only does God tell him and give him verbal instructions, like we read in chapter 25 through 40 on how to make the tabernacle, but God shows Moses a picture, if you will, a, a vision of what the tabernacle is to look like. The writer of Hebrews seems to confirm that. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, he says, We do have such a high priest, talking about Jesus. We have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. So the writer of Hebrews seems to indicate there is a heavenly tabernacle, one made by God, not made by human hands. He says, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. That is Jesus. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, and he quotes Exodus 25, verse 9. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So he says there's there's a, a pattern in heaven, a real one in heaven, if you will, and the one on earth is a copy of the real one in heaven. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, not a part of this creation. So there's a heavenly tabernacle. And perhaps God showed it to Moses and God said, this is how I want you to make it. Not just what he said in the words, but also here's the vision of how I want you to make it. And that's why it says, like the pattern, I will show you that you will see. And so God wanted his tabernacle to be made in a certain way. Why? Because it was to be, if you will, a little bit of heaven on earth. Of God's presence among his people. That heavenly tabernacle that Moses saw and the earthly tabernacle of which it is a copy, a pattern, is really just a foreshadowing of a new Jerusalem, isn't it? A new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, a new heavens and a new earth in which God will dwell among his people. Interestingly enough, there are also some some things, some details about the tabernacle that could indicate that it is to be like a, a recreation of Eden. There are some Genesis chapter 2 links with the tabernacle that suggest that like God dwelt with Adam and Eve in Eden, now he is coming again to dwell with his people among them in a new creation, in a new place, a new tabernacle where, where God will dwell. But that is really just a foreshadow, a type, isn't it, of the real new creation that will come one day when Jesus returns. So God is worthy of our worship. If I were to sum up what this passage is teaching us, I would say the God who redeemed us and entered into covenant with us is worthy of the very best gifts that we can give. 
so that he may be worshipped among us. The God who redeemed us and entered into covenant with us is worthy of the very best gifts that we can give so that he may be worshipped among us. May we as God's people delight in giving to him, in giving for his worship, and not only in giving of our resources, but in giving of our time to come and be in his presence to worship him with his people. May we bow before the Lord tonight in prayer. Our Father God, you are so holy and majestic. When we read about the intricate details of how this place of worship was to be constructed, this place that would house your presence, it reminds us, it teaches us, Lord, that you are holy and you are to be regarded and worshipped as holy. Father, may we, as your redeemed covenant people, bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, now members of the new covenant, your children, Lord, may we worship you with a whole heart. May we give to you our our best gifts. May we give to you our whole lives. Lord, you are worthy because you've redeemed us and you've called us as your own. So, Lord, help us to give cheerfully, willingly, and may we give of everything that we have for your worship and honor. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.